Femi Taiwo is assistant professor of philosophy at Georgetown University and author of an absolute boatload of crucial scholarly and public interventions, including recent work in Boston Review, Dissent, Foreign Policy, Aeon, The Nation, The Appeal, The Philosopher, uh, and on and on. He is also working on a book entitled Reconsidering Reparations that considers a novel philosophical argument for reparations and explores links with environmental justice. What we are hoping to do in this episode, and what we've done more recently with the Dia Benton and other guests, is dig into his ideas as, you know, as thoroughly as we can and then try to apply them to the sporting conditions around us to expand how we think about sport, harm, power, and athletes. Femi, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Well, the first thing we want to ask you, like we ask everyone, um, how's 2020 been treating you in D.C.? I can't complain, you know, um, as far as pandemic goes and imperial collapse, you know, I, I feel like I am doing okay, you know, uh, DC in particular has had being the capital, a very kind of contentious relationship with the cops people have been protesting pretty regularly some you know big some small so it's been an eventful place to be during all this yeah uh, i imagine um and we're gonna basically i mean i think we'll be digging into that as we sort of explore so many of the things that you've been engaging in this past year you know i was just thinking about this um right before we came on like uh, in a certain sense this episode is you know, or like at least when we we attach the um, the show notes and and link to your work and so forth, it's like we're creating a syllabus of like the current thought of Femi Taiwo because you've produced honestly in a in a year um, enough to really take us through um, you know a decade of of thinking. So we're gonna try to jump around from um, through some of your ideas, which are obviously all connected, right? And 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 then. Um, to try to connect them back to sport here. So let's let's start with something that you were actually um, you published on in uh, Boston Review, Descent, and Eon so far this year. Um, that is the topic of racial capitalism, and I, I think it's good to start with racial capitalism because it hopefully will provide us with a sort of maybe a bit of a theoretical frame then for um, for moving forward in the rest of the conversation. So I'd be grateful if you could lay out for us and for listeners what racial capitalism actually means as a theoretical frame. You know, it's a term, it's a concept we hear bandied around a lot, but not necessarily with the kind of technical specificity, perhaps, that I, I think is warranted. So it would be great to hear sort of perhaps how it is distinct from a more classical Marxism on the one hand, and then perhaps critical race theory on the other. Now, obviously, this is an absolutely immense question, but just if you could perhaps distill for us why you see this intervention as necessary, this sort of focus on racial capitalism, that theoretical framework, uh, it would be so very much appreciated. Yeah, I, I agree. That's probably a good place to start. Um, I think racial capitalism has a number of origin points, but you could maybe split them into two. And there's actually a good recent article by um, Yusuf Al-Balushi, who kind of gives a intellectual history of racial capitalism as an idea, as a set of ideas. And the term comes from um, a school of thought that got developed um, 
in the Dar es Salaam school and with some of the Zimbabwean radicals and the South African radicals who are trying to understand particular ways that capitalism and colonialism had developed in their part of the world, especially in South Africa. A lot of the intellectuals who were first using the term racial capitalism were um, South Africans. And Cedric Robinson, who the term is often credited to, um, was pretty, I think, explicit that he was getting this term from them um, and getting a fair bit of analysis from them as well, but also getting analysis from a different kind of intellectual trajectory that was the origin of what you might call world systems theory. So a lot of times people attribute world systems theory to people like Wallerstein or Samir Amin, if they're thinking in the kind of academic tradition outside of academia, you might start locating those thoughts in people like Lenin and Luxembourg. But the basic idea is there's a global system of politics. There's a global social system. Um, the relevant hierarchies are not in this or that part of the world, but in the entire world itself. And the relationships between what might look like different national economies or different regional economies. So early thinkers in that tradition are people like um, Eric Williams, who wrote Capitalism and Slavery, talking about a kind of Atlantic economic system developed around the Caribbean, North America, and the motherland of the British Empire. Um, Oliver Cox, who was talking about global social and political systems um, quite a bit before um, Amin and uh, Wallerstein and some of these other people. So there's a kind of world systems thought, and then there's a kind of idea that we have to think about the racial character of capitalism in some kind of sense. And Robinson combined those two strands, and people after Robinson have followed in that tradition. Not everyone, of course, because there's multiple schools, but that's the idea that I think about when I think about racial capitalism. So these two ideas converging. One, that there is a global system or a world system, and we have to think about politics at a global level. And the second, that if you think about politics at a global level, you get to this kind of racial character to how that politics functions. And the basic thing that I would say to kind of crystallize what the thought is about racial capitalism, at least as I think about it, is that there's a way of organizing society and not just production. Right? So to the extent that there's a break from Marxism or an elaboration on Marxism or orthodox material thought, there it is. Right? We're thinking about how social life in general is organized and not just how production is organized. And if we look at how that's organized, we see in multiple parts of the world, they might be different groups of people, um, or they might be the same groups of people, but whatever the groups are, there's a vertical, vertical hierarchy of groups, of splits in the population, um, and that vertical hierarchy 
corresponds to different political relationships. So it's not the kind of classic split, split between the proletariat and the capitalists, um, but there's a, because that's a split that wraps itself around production, but there's a split in social life more generally. And that's going to be the thought that's going to roughly map itself on the race. Um, so if you don't mind, we'd really like to look at two of our favorite empirical sites, the MBA and the WNBA and the player strikes over the summer and the very exploitative dynamics of big, big time college football. So could you walk us through how you might understand what transpired in these arenas through the lens of racial capitalism? So the, the background about what I would say about the NBA, and the WNBA, um, is you know, the kind of thing that you would say about popular sports in general, which is you have a system that disproportionately draws from um, people of working class backgrounds, although less so in recent years than in the past for um, reasons that I think are pretty interesting, but maybe we can come back to that. But you have, you know, professional leagues that draw from people of these backgrounds and people who unless they make the highest echelons of the sport which are astronomical odds um they won't get anything like the job security or um the job security or the income compensation or any of the other perks that come with being a successful athlete in their field. So for every person you see in the NBA, there's, I don't know, 20 other people who were also great at that sport, but perhaps were injured or perhaps, you know, just didn't make the cut for whatever reason. And with the exception of maybe a few people at the, very top of even these professional leagues, you know, I think that that background consideration is still probably pretty present. And what that translates into, I would guess, and it seems like the result of the player strikes, especially in the NWA, I think the WN, wow, I keep doing this, especially in the NBA, um, the WNBA, looked like they were a bit more militant. Um, but it results in a certain kind of labor discipline that, to me, makes sense against that background. And you have to ask people who are actually in the leagues if, you know, my guess is here on to something. But, you know, if you're not, you know, if you're not LeBron, right, if you're, you know, a role player on a team, um, and there's a lot of other good talent out there, and you have these extraordinary perks that come from being a role player. You know, the kind of activism that got started might be difficult to sustain because the insecurity that you have as you know, a person who could get injured or a person who could be fired for saying the wrong thing um, or behaving in the wrong way is essentially profit fuel for the people who own these um, who own these teams, who own the arenas, who 
get points off the merchandising. It strikes me that there's this is like really the you know industrial reserve army coming from Marx that that aspect right like the in in all in any elite sport this is something that I, I um I talked about ways back with Dirk Hayhurst who was a, a former minor league baseball player and major league baseball player and he talked about just this like this vast difference between the majors and minors and and the the way in which that was really used to exploit the labor in the minors um, this dream that, and like it was even an ideological kind of tool because the dream of making it like the hope of making it that prospect it's what produced that discipline in the minor leagues right no one wanted to step out of line because it would compromise the chance and there's like all this investment up into that moment of making the the big times and so i've i've seen exactly what you're talking about in the context of like the strikes then in the WNBA or the nba like this this fear of losing everything you've worked for when you're in one of the most coveted kinds of occupations in the world. Um, and so that's, and then, and then like, obviously, LeBron, as you put it, like LeBron is in a slightly different position. There are a few players who have way more clout than in that context. Um, do you think though, cause like, not that it matters, like it doesn't really matter. This is basically being semantic, but is there a, would you say there's a difference framing it through thinking about that through like the standpoint of racial capitalism versus like a more traditional Marxist analysis, like I said, of like sort of industrial reserve army. Maybe um, I, you know, I'm not sure whether or not you would have to have the same kind of analysis that people, I think, caricature orthodox Marxists or materialists is having, right. Um, you know, maybe they could accommodate the kind of things that I'm thinking about, but What's different to me, what's distinctive to me about um, the racial capitalism way of looking at things, and this is something I talk about in the Eon piece on material security. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think Ruthie Gilmore, um, who people I assume know, she's you know famous prison abolitionist, famous yes. geographer, famous scholar. Um, you know, and one of the foremost scholars of racial capitalism, I would say. And her definition of racism really puts cleanly the kind of thing that I'm thinking about. So she defines racism as the state-sanctioned and or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death. And that's a mouthful, and there's a lot of kind of jargony things in there, but Everything in there is there for a reason. And the basic thought, as I understand it, is there are group-level differences in people's vulnerability to premature death. So there's group-level, kind of population-level differences in how vulnerable this stratum of society is to premature death than this other stratum. And because that is there that gives other people opportunities and other people make it the case that some stratum some strata of society are more vulnerable than others that's the production exploitation part why that matters for this is i think that's just as direct an explanation of what's happening here as i can come up with the insecurity of minor league players for example is being exploited to keep the minor leagues the way they are and to help keep the major leagues the way that they are right and 
where that loops back to what I was saying um, a little bit earlier um, in response to the first question is, you know, when you explain why people are in these leagues, you're going to end up dealing with explanations of social life that are probably wider than, you know, what league you belong to and start looking like they map onto more deep kind of sociological divisions, the kind that come up when we're thinking about race. So why is it that working class black and brown kids are so well represented in these athletic markets? They're, of course, the standard kind of harder, soft scientific racism around, you know, maybe black yep. kids just run and jump real good, right? Yep. Yep. But also, maybe it's that they face very different kind of pressures for their security that make different things rational for them than would be for other people. Right? If you're, you know, a working class black kid in a community that's um, poorly served by their education system, and even if it were well served by their education system, you'd have to overcome everyone's discriminatory assumptions about what you know or whatever. Um, and you look out at the world and think, what paths are there from where I am to success? And the only examples you can come up with are someone dribbling a ball or singing into a microphone. You know, that's the kind of cliche story about racial politics in the U.S. You know, what, what is rational for you to do? What makes sense for you to do given where you're at and what resources you have access to? So, you know, on the back end, people try to figure out, um, you know, there, there are a bunch of, I think, Freakonomics chapters about this, why it is that people enter into drug markets when the kind of average return for someone working in a criminal organization isn't much better than a job at McDonald's, right? It's because... What does success look like in that organization? Well, if you rise to the top of an organization, you make a lot more money than a cashier does at McDonald's. So how do you make it, how do you make people participate in these markets, whether it's drugs or whether it's athletics, where the top is very different from the middle and the bottom? Well, people are likely to do that if other more secure paths are blocked to them. You know, there's probably a lot of people of pretty good athletic talent who decided to take a 50-50 shot at becoming an accountant rather than a one in a thousand shot at becoming an NBA player. But if you look at the background it's, at someone for whom that choice is available, you're likely to come up with a different background than for many of the people who are in these leagues. Yeah, I I totally see that. I, I mean, I I feel like we're we're really on the same wavelength because this is kind of how we have been, and I, and I just kind of want to push this question even a little bit further, um, just entirely in line with what you've been saying. Um, you've really launched into this because, you know, we've been spending since the summer. We've been thinking a lot about college football, writing a lot about college football, and just sort of interrogating what's been happening. Right? It's a, it's a nice little case study of a lot of the dynamics 
around harm and racial capitalism in sport and exactly the things that you've been getting into. And it seemed to me in sort of thinking about your work, how helpfully the ideas, especially in that Aeon piece about your ideas about security as you were getting into, right? These ideas like of negative and positive liberty, as you put it, right? Um, seem crucial for understanding questions of consent. Uh, I like to put in those terms, consent and consent to participate in sport. Because for those of us who like want to talk about harm in sport, that's always the sort of the clap back is, well, this is what they signed up for, right? They chose to play. In fact, we literally had in college football a hashtag movement this, this fall or whatever, the late summer, we want to play, right? Which of course was then used by many to justify everything about the project, because then it's consensual. They literally, they are campaigning to play. They are protesting to play. They're engaging in activism to play. What could be more consensual than that? Um, but still, I want to think about it because a conception of negative liberty, that we simply require permission in order to act, implies the decision to participate, for instance, in football is a choice freely made and thus consented to, right? So like, okay, we want to play is a good example of negative liberty. They, they want to play and they, nothing is stopping them from being able to play. So they have to make that choice. But that does ignore fundamental questions about security that you have articulated in your work, especially the fact that the violence of racial capitalism, as you have been describing it, renders people insecure with respect to the ability to reproduce themselves to survive and flourish according to their desires. The violence of privation and insecurity then are actually forms of coercion and constraint in exactly the way that you were just discussing, right? Like why you would make the choices you do, like why you would make a choice between a McDonald's even, or trying to live a hoop dream. So, I mean, I guess I just, just to kind of continue the conversation here, would you then agree that it's impossible to appraise the choice to participate in a harmful cultural form like football? And again, I want to bracket this. I'm, I'm taking it, I'm positing here as a given, because it is for us, that football, even outside of the pandemic, is an inherently harmful activity to participate in, right? I mean, it's destructive to brains, it's destructive to bodies. That's leaving aside the cultural norms that come with it, which I might argue are quite destructive sometimes, at least in terms of masculinity, um, hyper-discipline, right? There's a, there's a lot in football. And then on top of that, we have this pandemic, right? And then the you know, uncertainty of even if people survive contracting the virus, what does that mean for their long-term health and well-being? What does it mean that we're willing to subject people to these conditions? Um, so this is why I would characterize football as this, to me, inherently harmful cultural form. Is it possible to think about participation and consent in the context of football without engaging these fundamental questions of security? I don't think so. I think it, you know, I think what you said was spot on and just a kind of example of the kind of thing that what you're bringing out makes me think of is the kind of discussion that people have around, you know, what is called, quote unquote, the economic draft or backdoor draft or whatever, like how it is that people end up in the military given these kind of background considerations of security and um, access to economic advancement. So um, for a lot of people of working class backgrounds, especially working class people of color, the military, military service is one of the few reliable paths to a kind of secure middle class status, especially as the cost of education skyrocketed, you know, with the 
have background context of GI Bill sort of thing. So you have a bunch of people, you know, freely enlisting, right? There's no actual draft anymore. Um, but their choice to enlist only makes sense or makes better sense against the backdrop of this kind of lack of alternative options for being able to provide for themselves and their families in any secure sort of way and safeguard their safety in a whole bunch of other ways, right? And so you have a bunch of people who end up in the military, and there's obviously um, a number of criticisms that we could have for military culture. Um, but then occasionally, and you know, not so occasionally in the case of the United States, we are a very warlike country, um, people end up deployed, and the geopolitical and or economic interests that are being defended in these wars end up costing them their lives, their physical health, their mental health. Um, there's quite, I think, some standard veterans assistance on the back end for a lot of these problems. Um, and on the front end, the human cost of the wars for those who have enlisted in the military and certainly for the populations that are affected by the deployments, the people invaded, the Iraqis, the Afghans, the Somalis, are not taken quite, you know, not taken very seriously. And so you have all of these, you have a whole spectrum of costs, a whole spectrum of damages, a whole spectrum of broken bones and psyches on the back end of these quote-unquote decisions that you can't really understand except as themselves the result of broken bones and psyches from a generation ago, two generations ago, two years ago. And so I think the same kind of thing is at work even in sport, which might seem quite a bit different from military, but I don't actually think is maybe as different as it seems. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I actually, I actually really, really appreciate this comparison. And, and I also appreciate how you talk about like broken bodies, broken psyches, because this is something that, as, as Nathan mentioned, we are very sort of um, concerned about with sport and that we've talked about in a lot of different spheres. And so I think you making clear that comparison makes it all the more compelling. And so, so thank you so much for that. Um, now we'd like to shift a little bit to talk about elite capture and how it intervenes in debates about so-called or quote unquote identity politics and perhaps how it fits into the larger conversation about racial capitalism. Now, if we understand you correctly, when you use the term elite capture, you are not trying to challenge the necessary position that identity, gender, race, sexuality, ability, etc., that identity has a profound impact on one's relationship to power and privilege, but rather focus our attention on where and how struggles for justice occur. 
In other words, elite capture highlights how easily appropriation can, appropriation can occur, particularly in the context of capitalism, and how quickly the terrain of struggle can shift from the material. And as we have discussed with respect to racial capitalism, the material is very much a racialized and gendered ground to the symbolic, both as a question of cultural representation and of a sort of tokenistic political representation. Do we have this right? And can you talk a bit about how significant you think elite capture has been in the events of 2020? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, You know, by elite capture, I basically just mean what the phrase sounds like. So the most advantaged people in a group get control over the benefits or resources that might otherwise be for the whole group, right? And sometimes it's money, sometimes it's attention, sometimes it's political agendas, sometimes it's some kind of combination of those things. Um, But I think that's what's happening. And at the level of formal politics, especially where you might say that a certain level of showmanship or a certain level of um, veneer is part and parcel of how the game is played. I think you know the effects of elite capture have been pretty clear. Um, both parties in the case of the U.S. have made overtures of some kind to um, appointing key people who represent one marginalized group or other to positions of power and prominence. Um, Biden, uh, President-elect Biden, has been particularly interested in that strategy. Um, But it's not just the people at the very top. Um, I think you've seen similar kinds of craftsmanship at lower levels of governance. I'll just use Washington, D.C. as an example, as that's where I live. Um, If I walk a few minutes south, I'll end up in Black Lives Matter Plaza. And depending on what time of day I show up at the plaza near the White House where the streets have been planted with Black Lives Matter, uh, I might arrive at Black Lives Matter at the right time to see the police beating up Black Lives Matter protesters and tear gas. Um, so, you know, that's what we're dealing with in 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and I, I really appreciate as as awful as it sounds, I really appreciate you kind of grounding it and and sort of the circumstances that you face every day because I think that really um, shows how how important this is. And, and sort of we we'd love to bring the conversation sort of back to sports now and, and the question of how we might understand the importance or sort of the usefulness of elite capture in the realm of harm in sport that we tend to discuss. And it might be, again, useful to return to the summer and the, in the events that you've already talked about in terms of the uprisings against um, police brutality and white supremacy. And, and in every league, we saw the release of statements from teams denouncing to varying, various degrees of conviction racism. We saw athletes protest on the field. We saw justice-oriented slogans on jerseys. 
And we did indeed see actual player strikes. And we saw the commissioner of the NFL endorse athlete activism. Now, to what extent would you say these events exemplified elite capture? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. That's an interesting question. Because I think it's a testament to how effectively these leagues and politics in general is managed by the power structure that I have a tough time thinking of it in terms of elite capture because I just think of it as so divorced from movement politics in the first instance. And that history is not new. Um, you know, John Carlos in 1968, for example, everyone knows um, the picture of him and Tommy Smith when they, um, I, for, I forget which race it was, but, the, you know, they won maybe the 100 meter, maybe the 200 meter, um, and they're raising their fists on the podium at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And you know, just just that it's you know it kind of prefigures Kaepernick in that sense, but just a silent kind of nod to what's happening. And if you were anywhere in the U.S. in 1968, you knew what was happening. Uh, King was murdered. There were riots. Um, you know, it was it was an action-packed year, and the the backlash to this kind of silent, symbolic acknowledgement that there was political significance to who they were and where they were and them winning was severe and life-altering for these people. And the same is true of today's athletes in 2020, Uh, Kaepernick just being one particularly salient example but for any of them to even acknowledge what's happening in the world that they live in that their family lives in is um something that's been so far ruled out of the going norms of how people conduct themselves at the highest level of sport and and so i i I say all that to say you know when i think of elite capture i think of the capture of the agenda by people who are involved. And I wouldn't even have thought before the WNBA, before those players started striking, I wouldn't even have thought of them as a factor politically. Um, And and so in a sense, it's kind of a testament to um, the WNBA and the other leagues that struck afterwards that, you know, it's kind of an advance relative to the status quo and so it feels a little sad to describe what happened afterwards as elite capture even though i'm not sure that it's inaccurate would you say that there's a way in which um what's happened to colin kaepernick is an example of elite capture um like i'm thinking especially of 
the, it's to me, it's a really complex question because this is a person who engaged in a very brave, very brave, transformative form of activism that's really in the in the sporting world changed the conversation. Starting in twenty sixteen, he's I'm not saying that he started athlete activism, but I think that his particular protests starting in twenty sixteen did more than anything to change the larger conversation about athlete activism and, and this conversation about Black Lives Matter in the context of sports particularly and to kind of make the sporting protests spill out beyond sport. Um, and then he was punished for it, obviously, um, cruelly by the league. Uh, he was blackballed. He paid the ultimate price. He took a risk that he knew he was taking in a league where your contracts aren't guaranteed. You're always at risk. Um, he knew that. And he took that chance anyway. And he paid for it. And then ultimately, right, he ends up um, endorsing with Nike. And Nike then picks up this campaign, right, which is around, um, specifically around his protest. They essentially marketed his act of activism, his protest. They completely commodified it. This is a person who lost his income. So, I mean... It's hard for me to say that we could, we should um, you know criticize him for taking an opportunity that came along. But I guess what I'm just trying to I'm just trying to ask how might elite capture as a concept help us think through like what to make of that process and even where it stands right now. Like, what does it mean that Nike can literally market this most the most radical? form of athletic protest we had seen in decades it could just become a slogan for nike yeah i think it's a i i i do think it is elite capture i would lay it at nike's feet as you did right um but what it points us to is the way that capitalism as a system you know speaks louder than our kind of tends to speak louder than our sort of individual moral convictions or opinions or ideologies, right? And I, I, I liked how you put it. At the end of the day, Kaepernick didn't have an income. And there's a way that that kind of, you know, perhaps isn't the full explanation that we would give if we were sitting here for an hour trying to figure out why he made the decisions that he made. But it speaks louder in a way than some of the other factors. Um, Nike was able to capture this elite message in the same way that Muriel Bowser, who is the mayor of Washington, D.C., and who made the decision to paint um, a few blocks downtown and deem them Black Lives Matter Plaza. You know, both of these made the kinds of, both of these figures the mayor's office and the Nike corporation made the kind of decision that you can make when you have money, power, and access, which is you can just create messages and you can, in, a, in an important sense, decide what things mean. You know, Mayor Bowser doesn't decide whether or not I agree with Black Lives Matter Plaza or think of it as an important political act. But she does get to decide what those blocks are called on the street sign. She does get to decide what's get, 
what gets painted on them. And, you know, that message is going to circulate wider and faster for good or ill than, you know, any tweet criticizing it. And Nike can do the same with advertising dollars, and they have been doing it, and with whatever offer it was that they made Kaepernick. They're able to just decide what a Kaepernick jersey means, and apparently means just do it now. (laughs) And, you know, I, I think that's... I think... The tendency, or the, the tendency I want to avoid, let me put it that way, is for us to look at phenomena like elite capture and try to be like, well, that's what happens when, you know, Colin Kaepernick is a bad person, or Muriel Bowser is a bad person, or the Nike Corporation is a bad person. Um, and when they make these kind of cynical you know, comic book villainy plots to interrupt our politics and interrupt our normal patterns of communication and conspiratorially shift things. That's That does happen. And in those two examples, I don't think that's far off from the truth of what happens. But it's actually the same power that the mayor's office and the Nike corporation has when they say anything, right? They're able to get Kaepernick to circulate the same way that just do it. The motto circulates It's the same people writing the ad copy. It's the same news networks running the ads. It's the same people in the sweatshops making the shoes and the jerseys. And that's actually the power that explains elite capture. It's not some special thing that happens when people get conspiratorially activated or when people get conniving. It's the downstream effect of the way that we distribute power in a society like this one, in a racial capitalist society. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for, I really like how you kind of, put it that last month, the kind of downstream impact of how sort of power is disseminated. Um, I, I think that's really excellent. Um, and, and so you have another really fascinating piece in the philosopher entitled being in the room privilege, elite capture and epistemic deference. Oh, we really, really cannot recommend it enough. And, and when Nathan sent it out, we were just sort of like texting each other, like back and forth, you know, we have to talk to him about this. This is so fascinating. Um, and, and really, it's one of the most provocative things we've read recently. Um, and many of the things um, with which we've been discussing, um, although from more of a sort of a technically philosophical perspective. Um, now, before we go even further, could you explain to listeners what standpoint epistemology and epistemic deference mean? Yeah, um, and thanks for the kind words. Um, so, standpoint epistemology is an idea that got circulated in the academy. It dates back to a Marxist philosopher by the name of Lukash, um, at least early versions of the idea, and was developed a lot by uh, feminist intellectuals. But the basic idea of standpoint epistemology is um, that knowledge, that's where um, 
where you see episteme, it's just knowledge, right? Um, knowledge is socially situated. So where you are socially, um, how you relate to the society around you affects what you know, how you know, et cetera. That's one aspect of what gets called standpoint epistemology. Second aspect is that marginalized people have some advantages for some forms of knowledge. So being marginalized is a way of being in society, right? It's a kind of relationship to the society around you. And it turns out when you're marginalized, that actually helps you know some things. And once you have those first two ideas going, that where you are in society matters for what you know and how you know, and that being marginalized helps you know some things. We should just, number three, reflect these facts in the way that we design research. So if we want to know about housing, for example, and, and this example also sets up the kind of problem I'm thinking about. You might want to talk about, you might want to talk to the people who struggle the most with housing security. Those people might know more things and different things about housing than the rest of us. And so if we're trying to learn about housing, we should relate somehow our way of producing knowledge about housing to this fact that there's this group of people out there that have better access to important forms of knowledge than other people. So that's standpoint epistemology. Deference epistemology is one way of answering how we should change our relationship to the world and to research on the basis of those ideas I just said. So some people have social positions that let them know more things or different things. One thing, one way that we could respond to that fact is we should just defer. So when we're in a conversation with a marginalized person, and they say, this thing is true, we should accept that thing as true, maybe for the purposes of the conversation, maybe in general, maybe we should just accept it as knowledge, or maybe we should act as if we do, right? That's, that's deference. We give those people the lead. And basically, all the essay does is invite people to notice that those are two different things, right? You could think all this stuff is true about standpoint epistemology without thinking that the way that you should respond to that is by um, this strategy of deference, right? There could be other ways that we respond. And I propose a different way. Um, I say, instead of doing this deference thing um, where we have the same conversations with the same people that we were having before, but we just defer to marginalized people in the rooms that we go in and out of and have conversations in. Um, I think a better focus is we should think more critically about what kind of rooms we're in, and much more importantly than thinking critically about what kind of rooms we're in, we should build other rooms or populate these rooms differently or some kind of combination about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and like, there's, there's so much here. I think this is really rich because, um, you're like, you're describing, uh, some really complex terrain so succinctly and actually really clearly, but I want to kind of just sort of, I want to go back over some of what you're describing. So, so first you laid out for us, um, 
you know, standpoint versus deference epistemology. So I think that distinction is really clear. Um, and I think you're arguing then, among many other things, that well, experience produces knowledge and identity in ways that are real, meaningful, and deserving of attention. This doesn't mean that the knowledge and identity that are produced by experience are necessarily politically constructive. Um, so that's, a, I think, a fascinating point about harm and trauma uh, and what that does to people and the fact that we shouldn't necessarily idealize those things. Like you've specifically said that like one of the problems with trauma, aside from just like the pain that comes with it, is that it also produces traumatized people. And traumatized people are not necessarily people that are in a strong position, let's say, to kind of politically engage and move forward and transform the world in a more humane way, potentially, right? So that's one aspect of this equation. It also doesn't mean that the people who have experienced the most harm are actually the ones who become empowered to speak in the spaces where power circulates and where standpoint epistemology may have some currency, for instance, the academy. And that, like, I think, is such a powerful point running through kind of everything you're saying here, right? Like, we have debates about like what standpoint epistemology is and what deference, what deference requires. But like at the, at the end of the day, no academic intervention we make, no matter how, this is what you, you say, like, I'm just, I'm just borrowing your incredibly eloquent words. Um, there's no perfect formulation of an argument in an academic space that solves the security issues, for instance, that we were talking about earlier with respect to racial capitalism. It does not actually make someone's life more secure who faces the greatest forms of insecurity. There's nothing that can do that in, in those types of spaces. So we really have to think about the fact that even though, and, and you said this, and you, you did really, you had a wonderful episode um, of The Dig that you just recorded. Uh, and, I, and I absolutely recommend that people listen to that too, because that, you spend an hour and 45 minutes parsing this one essay, which is like seven pages long. So um, by all means, like people should listen to that because you go into greater depth there. Um, but um, one of the points you make on the dig is that we absolutely should care about identity in the context even of elite spaces, right? Because there's no actual justification for the fact that like white men historically have been canonized in our syllabi and whatever else, right? Like that's actually not just, there's, there's no way in which that's just. And so it's inherently better to diversify, quote unquote, diversify a syllabus because it's simply like that is a more fair way of um, engaging in knowledge production, right? Like we shouldn't be silencing voices. That's always wrong. Uh, so this isn't a, in that sense, a rebuttal, right? To standpoint epistemology or to any kinds of movements for justice or according to axes of race, gender, et cetera. Right. But, but that struggle to diversify the syllabus does not ultimately get people a home if they don't have a home, right? It doesn't save someone from an encounter with the police um, that is entirely conditioned by um, the way in which they are racialized in society, right? These things are still going to be happening outside of those rooms. And it's like one of the things I'm, I'm reading here into what you're saying is like if we get too preoccupied with those conversations about diversifying the syllabus, which should happen, like it necessarily should happen. But if that becomes the entire terrain of our politics, 
then we're not actually like those of us who are in elite spaces are just capturing the politics. Ultimately, we're using them for our own ends, but possibly like bolstering our own careers, whatever else it is that we're doing. Um, so this brings you were getting to it. And I like the point is then not to dismiss or whatever. It's like so deference epistemology complicates standpoint epistemology. But then you want to move beyond. It's not like that means that that forecloses possibilities for constructive work or thinking. Um, that's why you come to this constructivist approach. And you wrote, the constructive approach to standpoint epistemology is demanding. It asks that we swim upstream, to be accountable and responsive to people who aren't yet in the room, to build the kinds of rooms we could sit in together rather than merely judiciously navigating the rooms history has built for us. But this weighty demand is par for the course when it comes to the politics of knowledge. The American philosopher Sandra Harding famously pointed out that the standpoint epistemology, properly understood, demands more rigor from science and knowledge production processes generally, not less, uh, ending that quote. So you, you started doing this for us, but could you just maybe talk a little bit more about your constructive approach to standpoint epistemology and why it is, in fact, a politically practical way to frame knowledge production and identity. And I kind of ask you to do this because then I'd like to talk about sports. You know, I, again, we were talking about philosophy here, not sports, but I want to come to sports because on this podcast, what do we do all the time? We tear sports down. We're always talking about the harm, what is problematic about sport. But I mean, people also want to know what then, right? And I mean, I often resist that question, but I think you are giving us the kind of framework to, I think, productively think through it. So that's sort of why I'd love to hear a little bit more about constructivist your constructivist approach so then we can work on applying it. Yeah. So the example that I give in the essay is what the people who live in Flint did. So the background being the Flint water crisis, it found, um, it was found out that the water supply of many homes in Flint, Michigan was uh, full of contaminants. And the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality um, tried to convince the rest of the world um, that the water was safe to drink with the complicity of a number of people, including um, then President Barack Obama. And they went on a campaign to get the water fixed. And that involved some epistemic questions. And those epistemic questions were, had to do with authority, right? They needed to be able to produce the kind of counter-narrative to the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality that could get political wheels turning. So they um, made connections with scientists who had the relevant kind of labs. They talked to their neighbors. They did citizen science to get samples and analyze those samples and prove that the water was actually contaminated. And then that fed into a legal campaign and more political activism. And eventually, they got the state of Michigan to pay damages, and they got um, the gears moving to replace the pipes and end the contamination. 
So that kind of example shows that what we want, I think, and what is different from the sort of diversify the syllabi kind of way of thinking about standpoint epistemology is not knowledge for knowledge's sake or representation in knowledge production for representation's sake, but to answer different kinds of questions. Like, what do we need to know in order to change the political system in the way that we want? What do we need to be able to prove in order to change the political system in the way that we want? What do we need to find out? What do we need to expose? Those kinds of questions. And those are practical questions that have, you know, knowledge claims in there and knowledge questions in there, but they're nested in a political project, a project that is challenging power in actuality rather than symbolically. Power says we're not fixing the pipes, and we say, no, you're going to fix the pipes. You know, th that kind of actual clash between what the powers that be want to do and what the rest of us want. And I think that's what the constructive approach is about. We're trying to fix actual pipes, actual facts about the world, actual institutions, and not just what those institutions look like or who they symbolically represent. There's space for that, obviously. Um, as you said, I'm not saying that those things are relevant or that they don't matter or that the way people are treated in elite spaces doesn't matter. Um, the only thing I'm rejecting is the equation of those sorts of things to full group interests. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And actually, so we, we'd like to figure out sort of how we can apply um, this sort of idea of standpoint epistemology to the context of sport as we've been doing so far uh, in this conversation. And this is because one huge issue that arises a lot when navigating questions of harm in sport is this question of agency, consent, and what the athlete quote unquote signs up for. And we have argued repeatedly, as have other people, that elite sport fundamentally subjects athletes to harm. Yet more often than not, we end up seeing these very athletes continue to participate or, or even demand that we want to play rather than organizing for resistance. And this actually literally played out this year in, in college football. Now, I'm curious if you think standpoint epistemology might actually help us think through some of the ideological dimensions of consent in the context, for example, of college football, and also how a constructivist approach might help us imagine political possibilities beyond the status quo. Yeah, what's interesting to me about the case of college football um, in the pandemic is that you have a bunch of people who are 
performing labor at considerable risks for their health, physically and mentally, but whose existence in the space that they occupy in important ways depends on them taking those risks. And so that's, you know, that's how the whole kind of college system functions, um, especially in the case of scholarship athletes and their ability to try to make it to the next leagues afterwards depends on their performance in this league. And so, you know, the college system is tough to take out of the larger spectrum of decisions um, and the larger spectrum of sports, right? This is a step along the way for, for some of them to um, professional leagues up to and including the NFL. And also their kind of social position on campus, I imagine, probably depends a lot on whether they're playing and how they're playing and how the team is doing. And those kinds of, um, those kinds of prestige type benefits or social status benefits, um, I think are often played up um, to, in a perverse way, substitute for actual financial payment. And so with all those things in mind, you have a situation where, you know, people are just intelligently navigating their interests, right? You know, they are deciding um, to play. And in some sense, it probably is better than the alternative of not playing. And if you were the sort of person who had the risk profile that wouldn't accept, you know, the risk of contracting COVID, um, I, I doubt you would be in a sport where something like one in eight people develop debil debilitating um, mental chronic problems, right? So the sport itself selects for a certain kind of acceptance of risk and the line between selecting for and producing the sort of person who accepts heavy risks becomes more and more difficult to discern as you tell the whole story of football in the United States as a system and not any particular level or rung of football. Right. These are people who have gone from Pop Warner all the way to maybe the NFL one day, right? So at the end of the day, I think the question, as always, you know, this is maybe the hammer in my toolbox. And so all I see is nails, or maybe I've gotten that backwards, but whatever. <laughs> So the only thing I know how to say. <laughs> only thing I know how to say is turns out that it's the whole system, right? And so the thing that we have to figure out, the kind of design project that we have to figure out is 
you know, if there is a acceptable form of having football as an American institution and, you know, maybe the sport is just too dangerous and some people won't accept that, but I'm sure a lot of people would like to answer what that would look like. Um, if there's some thing that football could look like that would be possible under racial capitalism and that would safeguard the interests of the players more or shift power and security in their direction rather than to the owners and the alumni and the donors and the university admins and the NFL team owners and the minor league team owners. Um, if there's a better system than that, then, you know, there's a pretty clear question to ask that has some important knowledge gathering parts, which is what is that system? Then there are transition questions to ask, you know, how do we get from here to that one? And I think the kinds of things that are exciting to me about this are the kinds of things being um, talked about in other aspects of the university if we're talking about college football, right? Um, bargaining for the common good. That's um, bringing people to bargain not only across um, different classes and categories of workers, but um, to outside of unions entirely, to um, including community residents and community organizations, and asking what kinds of demands that a unified group of that kind would make and what kinds they could win. And I think if you have organizing approaches like that, that um, knowledge questions could fit into, then you might start asking the kinds of questions that people have already been asking. So, you know, what is a, what would a college football players union look like? What kind of legal protections should they be entitled to above and beyond um, scholarships for tuition, especially when people come from radically different economic backgrounds? And those sorts of questions. And I think, you know, I don't want to say too much because I don't know nearly enough about college football to say much more than that. But I imagine those would be the kinds of questions you would think about from a constructive viewpoint. Yeah, well, you could have fooled us about how much you know about college football um, because that was a very, very insightful response. And actually, you covered so much, um, so much ground with that. Um, that like, so I. I loved how you came to this community bargaining thing because that's really what was coming to mind for me. I was thinking we had this We Are United campaign, which was especially the, the Pac-12 players, um, you know, literally organized. And it was like a, this kind of social media campaign, but also with a material basis, i.e. people behind the scenes who were saying we are at least gesturing towards withdrawing our labor behind these demands, the possibility of that. Um, and I don't know, I guess what, you know, what I'm trying to get, what I'm trying to say is as meaningful as that seemed and as how almost radical really in the context of college sport, given what the history of how subordinated players have been to the interests of universities, there's still a level on which that was a symbolic 
kind of claim and demand to me, you know, because it was, it's easy enough for people, for instance, you know, who, who are supportive to sort of say like, yeah, we're, we're going to retweet that piece in the Players' Tribune in which they make the demand that we are united and these are the things we want and to follow the story and to kind of like pay lip service to being in solidarity. And I, 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 this isn't me saying that people are in bad faith. I, I think they genuinely feel in solidarity, right? And want this change to happen, want power to happen. But I mean, it didn't because what, what happened? They got in the office with the commissioner of the Pac-12 and he laughed them out of the room. He just said, no, we're not going to do any of these things. <laughs> and lo and behold, Pac-12 football came back on the terms of the conference and the terms of the universities, right? The demands of the players didn't actually accomplish anything in terms of changing their working conditions or these larger questions of college sports. This is not to blame the players. It's amazing what they did. Um, but it does point to you know, how thin perhaps the organization ultimately was, um, how symbolic it was. That's what I'm trying to get at. And, but then what you're saying about community bargaining, that's what gets at where I want to maybe see some possibility for something different. Because it seems to me like if there's real hope for a kind of change, you know, it's actually very easy to see what the community is. I'm not just saying like random Americans. Sure, it'd be great if fans who care about college sports, you know, just all, I don't know, like participated in some kind of movement, like, you know, went on strike to to support the interests of college athletes. But obviously that's not going to happen. Like we can't have a general strike to save people's lives and homes or whatever else. Like it's not going to happen for college football players. But, you know, they're actually embedded in communities that do have much more shared coherent interests right like tenure track faculty precarious faculty college athletes to a significant degree other students and staff on campuses we have shared um politics we have grounds for solidarity we're in the face of the uh, the the Yet a, a new iteration of this austerity university, which we're facing, you know, and if we're, we're talking about building new rooms, like we need to build rooms in a building that is collapsing around us, right? I mean, that's, that's what's occurring, whether we like it or not. Um, and it seems to me like the only hope any of us have is some kind of real solidarity where we recognize those aligned interests. Um, it's not just like the college football players. It's not all about the college football players, but like there's a way in which faculty, for instance, have power that college football players don't have. And there's a way that college football players have power that faculty don't have. I guess I'm trying to imagine, the problem is like, this is, this is lovely in the abstract, but this also goes back to our earlier conversation where it's like, oh, am I making, am I just making a nice little <laughs> academic abstract argument? Like, wouldn't it be nice if we all had solidarity together? That would be terrific. And then I can publish that in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And that's like my nice little, you know, <laughs> epistemic intervention that does nothing. How does that change? College football doesn't. Nice little argument. How do we get from there, here to there? You know, I don't know. I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, but you're making me think about all these things. Yeah, but I think I think that is I think that's the right question. And you know, as as you said, you know, it's it's one thing to ask the question, you know, um and an, another thing to answer it, right? But I think at bottom 
you know, that's the role of, you know, what I'm calling constructive epistemology, right? It's just, you know, how do we figure out how to build the kinds of connection that are going to build a world better than this? And that's different from, you know, and again, as you said, not to blame the players, but that's actually different from just asking the question, what would a better world be? We, we need to ask that question, right? It's great that they had demands. It's great that they got together to, you know, push for them. But we also have to ask the question of how we're going to get our demands. And that leads us back into the kinds of things that we were talking about around bargaining for the common good. So one kind of clear question that, is, that isn't an abstract philosophical question, but is the concrete question that politics turn on is, what is our leverage, right? What's the kind of leverage we have access to? And the bargaining for the common good framework just expands that question um, in different ways. So a union bargaining by itself might only have access to the leverage that the workers in the union have. Um, but if the bargaining for the co common good model works, if it's successful, then you can broaden that out. It's, well, if we team up with this community organization, and if we get this many members of our various communities on board, now what leverage do we have? Now what can we do? Right? Because that's the power, that's the language that power speaks. Right? Power, political power doesn't speak justice. If it did, we would live in a different world and we wouldn't need to do all this shit. Right? What we have to say to them is here's what's going to happen for you if we don't get our demands can 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 i curse on this Is that, oh yeah absolutely yep, yep no problem okay <laughs> cool <laughs> but like you know here's what here's precisely what will be fucked up for you if we don't get our demands and there's questions about what to target and there's questions about um there's questions about what to target. There's questions about who to target. There's questions about how you get these things going. But these are the strikes that win. There's, there's a reason the Chicago Teachers Union won a lot of their demands. It's a reason why teachers in West Virginia and Oklahoma won their demands. And that's because they had the organization and were willing to do the things that fucked things up for Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Rahm Emanuel, and didn't, and the people that could make the decisions on the things that their demands pertain to, right? They weren't only risking their own health, wealth, and security, right? They were posing a threat to the elite's power. They're posing a threat to how well things were going for them. And unless and until you find a way to pose that kind of a threat, 
thinking up demands, thinking up what justice tells us about what sports should be like will only ever be a step one. It's an important step, but there's a step two and three that we have to get to. And for to achieve change in anything, I'm now I'm not just talking about college football, I'm talking about politics. Um, but if you want to get to the other side, those kinds of questions are what we should be thinking about. And that's what I've had in mind with a lot of these pieces. There's a lot of questions about, there's a lot of concrete questions that require actually quite a bit of analysis and, you know, counting and talking to people and thought and deliberation and conversation. There's all kinds of intellectual work we could be doing at the academy and beyond the academy to answer these kinds of questions. And we know because the people living in Flint showed us an example. Other people have shown us an example. The people in Mabu, Kenya, protesting a coal plant out there have showed us examples. There's other kinds of questions we could ask about the social system and what to do about it. And once we get more hands on deck for those, and not just intellectually asking the questions, but asking in the context of a political project, um, I think we'll be better off. Yeah, absolutely. And this is sort of more a comment that I'm, I've been I've been sort of thinking about because it's very much unfolding right now with the last couple, I guess, really this whole fall, how um, a lot of um, athletic directors and, and sort of university presidents have announced the um, the shutting down or the the elimination of different sports teams on um, college college campuses. Um, they're saying it's because of COVID, but a lot of it because of like pre-existing sort of budget issues and the sports that are being cut are like predominantly the like Olympic sports that don't typically gener- generate that much revenue. Um, a lot of them are predominantly white sports, not all of them, but a lot of them are like swimming and gymnastics and, and tennis and, and wrestling, things like that. And actually tonight um, they're airing. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet because, you know, we're recording, but um 60 Minutes did a whole segment, I think maybe an hour long segment, or at least a partial segment on this issue of um, these sports programs that are being cut from athletic departments. And it's so interesting to me that, you know, there was all that activism over the summer. There were like these huge momentous movements going on within college football teams. And I could be wrong. So Nathan, feel free to correct me, but I don't remember any kind of like 60 minutes feature on them. And so it just is Mm, like, mm -hmm. it just is like astounding to me when I'm thinking about the comparison. And in some ways it is apples to oranges, right? Because it's not as if the, the players who were protesting over the summer, it's not like their teams were being eliminated, but it was like harm of a much, much more dire, much more dire nature than simply their programs being cut. And I don't even, you know, simply is even putting it simply like I was a college swimmer. So like, I know that if my team had been cut while I was there, I would have been pissed. But just kind of putting it in the grand scheme of things, it's just so interesting when we're talking about like the efforts that are required to create like a broad-based movement and to like continue with, 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 with the momentum once you have it. And how within the the span of like a few months, we'd go from there being like a couple petitions saying, you know, this swim team, this wrestling team, this gymnastics, whatever, these teams need to need to sort of be maintained. 
And then now they have a 60 minutes feature. I don't really know where I'm going with this, but it just kind of is like a really interesting comparison that your, that your comments have made me think about. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really interesting comparison. I'd be interested to kind of dive in to see which sports got the, got the 60 minute coverage and which were on the chopping block. But, you know, I guess what I would wonder about is um, the relative safety of those two stories. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the other, you know, one of the other elite capture problems is, of course, who runs the media conglomerates, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, you know, it's unsurprising the relative amount of coverage that some labor movements get rather than others. and. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think anything, I don't have any conspiratorial thoughts about why it is that some things get covered rather than others, but there's just ordinary sociological things that explain, you know, what kinds of coverage these things are going to get, you know, I mean, I, I'd be willing to bet there's more former gymnasts and former fencers um, than, you know, uh, former Division One football players in a lot of newsrooms, right? Um, you know, total guess, but who knows? I haven't run the numbers, but... Yeah, not just that, but let me just add this. I, I think it's more, it's like, that's a more kind of nuanced way of looking at it. Let me just say this. 60 Minutes runs on CBS. CBS airs SEC college football. Hmm. (laughs) Question answered, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) There you go. The materialist analysis of 60 Minutes. (laughs) It's right there. No, that's exactly, yeah. And just between what the bosses are interested in and what the sort of middle management people have experienced, you know, you could get a lot of these explanations up and running without having to give anything approaching a conspiracy theory about why, but, but it, but it ends up with these interesting things that Joanna was pointing out, right? Like what gets coverage and what gets relegated to the side. It does, it's not going to make a lot of sense if you're just looking at the content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's, it's so like, again, this is very much like thoughts and process. And I, and I don't, how do I say, I don't mean to belittle the like athletes who are seeing their programs be you disappeared, all these things. And, and I, and like, I, I look forward to sort of seeing it. And one of our, one of our colleagues is, is, is being featured on it to really nuance the conversation that that's being had. Um, and how, how do I say it's, it, it's not as if we're seeing athletes across multiple sports that are working together. And it's not like we're necessarily seeing athletes on these more Olympic sports that are also advocating for like the safety of football players, that there were some who were doing that. There were some schools and they think can speak more definitively than I can, but there were more broad-based movements in certain programs. Um, but I know just based off of like what, what we were seeing on Twitter and like the, the, um, the sort of promo video for this thing featured like a white male athlete and like they were showing like track athletes which track is not a predominantly white sport by any means but it was just kind of interesting that his voice was the one 
that was being used over and over in the promo that literally kept appearing as like an almost like an ad by the time by the time I was kind of done by the end of tonight. Um, I just kind of thought that was interesting. Yeah, and sometimes I wonder how much of it is newsrooms trying to anticipate the the openness of their audience and how much of it is their own lack thereof and how much and how disentangleable those two things are from each other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Femi, thank you so, so much for just really letting us um, kind of give it, giving us more insight in your really complex but super important ideas and kind of walking us through how we can begin to apply your ideas to sport because your ideas and the ideas of like at the event and other people, the, these are the things that we really need to be thinking about when we are analyzing sport. Um, so thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you here with us tonight. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please support the show through our Patreon, which can be found on our website. Until next time, friends. Mm-hmm.